0: Uh, you're so welcome. Uh, we are thrilled that you're here. Uh, like I said, if you're a guest or a visitor, if a family member or a friend has invited you, uh, we really hope and pray that you feel at ease and a part of the family. If you have little people with you, um, I hope that you feel very comfortable. Please don't feel bad if they get noisy. Uh, you've just witnessed what normal for me at home is, and uh, that was pretty quiet. Uh, you'll also, if you're a guest or visitor, you will hear lots of noise coming from the back of the room. Uh, we have little party for two and a half to five-year-olds. And big party for five to eleven-year-olds, and we unashamedly call that a party, and it is a party, and they are going to have a blast in there, and they'll be very noisy. It Doesn't bother me. I hope it doesn't distract you um, too much. I made a huge mistake this morning. Um, I wrote my mum into my talk, and then she showed up in the first gathering, which was so risky, and I'm pretty sure I'm in trouble because uh, we're not having any Easter Sunday lunch this year, and because uh, I, I didn't say this right. The, truth is they're getting their house renovated I'll, we'll put this one out in the podcast and I'll tell her to listen to it they're getting their house renovated and they have no kitchen so we're chicken and broccoli bake and I made fun that we're not actually getting an Easter lunch and I was very upset about that and I think I hurt her feelings so I'll need to sort that out this afternoon but I wonder how many of you in the room are dates people anniversaries birthdays special moments you're brilliant at wave at me you're brilliant at memorizing them yeah some of you um, yeah, totally. I am the opposite. And one of my uh, like, hopes would be that I would marry somebody who was a dates person, uh, but I didn't. And so Dana and I are absolutely terrible at dates. But my mom, my mom is amazing at dates. Like she never forgets a birthday. She never forgets an anniversary. She is the whole family, an extended family. Like well, I, I mightn't talk to one of my cousins for like months, literally months. And then I'll get a text from her, like, do you know it's your cousin's birthday tomorrow? I'm like, "Like, we, we, we're not in each other's life at all, but anyway, she's, she's brilliant at dates. But I don't know if any of you have family members that do this. This is one my mom does all the time. She does, uh, we'll be at a family gathering, and she'll go, do you know where we were this time four years ago? <laughs> like, who cares? <laughs> you know, or uh, or coming up the birthdays, this one's brilliant. Coming up the birthdays, she'll go, uh this time 30 years ago I was at your Nana's praying you would hurry up It's the oddest, it's the oddest thing. But like, you know, she just like she she has all these stories. She never ever forgets things, and um, we find that stuff a little bit quirky. And she tells the same stories about our uh, what was happening around the time that we were born, or like what was happening this time, so and so many years ago in our family, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, we all make fun of her about it and all that sort of stuff. But the the reality is actually there's something really quite powerful in our lives, particularly in our families when we retell our stories. Any of you have grandparents that like tell the same stories over and over and over? And isn't it funny like you've got that kind of grandparent rule, you can never say we've heard this before. Like it's really disrespectful, so you all have to go, oh wow, did that happen? My goodness me, I've never heard that before. One of the things I'm quite excited about becoming old is that you actually are able to tell the same stories over and over again. Because I had this thought this week as I was thinking about this, that what if actually our grandparents are way more switched on when it comes to this stuff than we actually give them credit? What if they haven't just forgotten that they've told us before? What if we haven't actually gotten the point of the story? What if actually they're aware that most of us spend most of our lives feeling really insecure, not really sure what our life should be or could be ordered around, kind of missing the point and thinking that outward success is kind of the whole point. And so they tell us these stories over and over and over again, hoping that one day it might actually sink and we might actually have an understanding and awareness of who we are that goes deeper than our minds and actually secures us into something that can't be blown around by the opinions of others or the amount of likes we got this week on Facebook or Instagram? What if it's actually on purpose? And they're not just telling us boring old stories, they're trying to tell us, this is who you are. And this is the story that... Is yours, and this is what it kind of means. One of the reasons I love gathering like this as church and as family is that's what this is about. When we gather every Sunday, we gather to remind ourselves what story it is that we find ourselves in. What is the story that we find ourselves in, and who are we in light of that story? And I love even more Easter and the Easter story and the Easter message that every year we remind ourselves of this incredible story. The story of Jesus. They did a, a survey two years ago, I think 2015 in England and Scotland. 39% of people thought Jesus was not a historical figure. is that mad? 39% of people surveyed thought Jesus was just this made up, religious, mythical character, I hope you're not among that percentage this morning, that you knew around 2,100 years ago there was a man called Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God, who was crucified by the Romans in a city called Jerusalem, and three days later rose from the dead and gave birth to this thing we now call the church. This Easter story is so, so significant for all of us. And I love that every year at Easter we pause and we remind ourselves of this the story of God, the story of us, and the story of what life is actually all about and should be ordered around. As we reflect on Easter this morning, I want us to reflect on two questions. And the first question is this What is broken? What is broken? I don't know about you, but as I've watched the news this week, um, I've found it hard to make the case for all is well in the world. This week, particularly, both close to home here in Northern Ireland and across the world, we have seen some incredible brokenness play out in all sorts of different spheres and ways. Any of you see the Australian cricket controversy this week? That video clip of... um, I can't remember the guy's name, the captain of the Australian team with his dad, weeping over the mistakes that he's made and the consequences for himself and his friends. It's just harrowing. And then much closer in terms of what's played out in the courts in Belfast and the fallout in social media and the nonsense that surrounds all of that. It's, it's hard this week to make a case for all is well in the world. I wonder what you would say answering the question, what's broken? Maybe bring that a little bit closer to home. I wonder how you would reflect on that in your own life. What's broken in your life, in your relationships? What's broken there? I've been doing this kind of work for nearly 14 years, and one of the things I observe almost in every person that I talk to is somewhere deep inside all of us there is this haunting, elusive, often sense of lack or brokenness or confusion or dislocation. Somewhere inside us, there often is this fear of not being strong enough or pretty enough or wealthy enough or confident enough or educated enough or liked enough or successful enough. And often as we mature as adults, we grow into this uh, better skilledness, what a terrible word, sorry, we get better at hiding it, and we get better at this game we often play of all is well in the world. And the reality is, if somebody could MRI our souls, what they look like is ducks, ducks, Where on the surface things can often seem very calm and okay, but under the surface we are going a million miles an hour, driven by all sorts of insecurities and fears and worries and anxieties and all of this stuff. And if you pay attention to people long enough, you discover most of us are haunted. Ghosts of the past, memories, regrets, shames, fears. Some of us it's ghosts of the future, sound like a Christmas carol or something like that. Worries about what might happen or what could happen, worries about our family. For some of us, it's this gnawing, nagging sense, this fear of one day being found out. I wonder this morning how would you answer this question of yourself what's broken? What's broken? It's a really important question. The second question I want us to reflect on for a few minutes this morning is one that the civil rights legend Ruby Seals articulated really beautifully. Where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? It's a question that I think is so important that we rediscover how to ask and be present with each other in. Where... Does it hurt? Where is the unseen or undealt with pain actually ruining or ruling your life? Where is your brokenness or the brokenness of others actually breaking you? Two questions. What is broken? And where does it hurt? Two questions that I, I think we we see in one of my favorite resurrection stories. It's found in the Gospel of John. Um, chapter 21. We're going to read that together. If you have a Bible close to you, turn to page 752. Page 752, John chapter 21. I'm going to read 19 verses. It's pretty long, so you might want to follow along if you can find a Bible close to you. Page 752, John 21, starting in verse 1. It says this. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. No, they answered. Then he said, "'Throw your net on the right side of the boat "'and you will find some.' And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "'It is the Lord.' As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, "'It is the Lord,' he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Then the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred meters." When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, Follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak to us. Lord, as we remember the story of Easter, as we reflect on Jesus' resurrection, we invite you to speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 2,000-odd years ago, in the city of Jerusalem, what would become Easter was unfolding, but not in a way anybody expected. We don't know exactly how much time from that first Easter Sunday morning to this story here in John 21 has passed. We know that it's been at least a week and probably not much more. So this is literally days after Jesus has been arrested, tried, tortured, executed, and then resurrected, appearing to his friends and his disciples. Try and put yourself in Peter's shoes. Peter is a character in the Bible that I kind of relate to a little bit. Peter's kind of a ready, fire, aim kind of person. Any of you you like that? Like, you get yourself into situations where you think, Flip, if I had actually thought about this, I might have approached this slightly differently. Or, or maybe I wouldn't have just blurted out that thing that now has all these kind of consequences. That's kind of Peter. He's, he's driven by passion. And I kind of relate to that. But, but Peter also gets himself in all sorts of deep water at different points in his life because of his passion. In chapter 13 of John's Gospel, Peter declares that he would lay his life down for Jesus. Jesus is talking about his death and Peter's like, I'm going to. If you're going to die, then I'm going to die. And when the mob comes to the garden the night before Jesus is executed, it's Peter that preempts the revolution and draws the sword and chops the soldier's ear off. Thinking that this was how God was going to establish his kingdom on earth, just like any other earthly king would through violence and force. And Jesus goes, you're wrong again, put the sword away. Peter then watches as the one in whom he placed all of his hope and trust and faith in is tortured and executed in the most humiliating fashion imaginable. And then just as he promised, he walks out of the grave on the morning of the third day. Of course, before he got there, it was also Peter warming himself by a fire as all of this was unfolding. And someone noticed his accent and recognized him and said, aren't you, aren't you one of them? Aren't you one of his followers? And Peter goes, no, not, definitely not me. I, geez, Jesus, I've never heard of him. I'm not friends with him. No, surely you are. I've seen you with him, and your accent is the same as all of those people who are friends with him. Of course, you're that guy. You know, you're the outspoken, loud one. We saw you. We heard about you. And Peter's like, not me. I don't know him. Stop kidding on. It's you. We know. It's definitely not. I've never been associated with Jesus. And then the rooster crows, and Peter's world falls apart. So Jesus has been resurrected and he's been appearing to his disciples. He's been talking to them. Um, And here in verse three of chapter one or chapter 21, it's obviously got all a bit much for Peter. And he says this, I'm going out to fish. In other words, I'm going back to what I know. Like this has all got a bit crazy. This has all got a bit much. I'm going back to something familiar. I'm going back to something that feels comfortable. I'm going back to fish. And if you know this story well, you will hear echoes in it of another story that we read earlier in the Gospels. It was out of a fishing boat three years earlier that Jesus calls to Peter for the first time, come and follow me and I will make you fish for men. Come and follow me and I will help you discover who God is and what he is doing in the world and the part that you can play in that story. And it's as if Peter is finally maybe accepting defeat. I guess I've blown it. It's over. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going back to what I was doing before I got involved in all of this Jesus stuff. And after he's been fishing all night, early in the morning, Jesus appears in the shore again. And as soon as Peter recognizes him, ready, fire, aim. He just jumps out of the boat. Grabs all of his clothes and jumps out of the boat. I mean, if it's me, the boat's coming next. I'm going to stay in my underwear and swim in and let the guys bring the coat, clothes, right? But not him. He grabs his clothes and jumps in with the clothes and gets onto the beach and, sorry Jesus, I'm a bit soaked here, hold on. What must have been going on in his heart the minute he recognizes it's Jesus, all kind of planning, logic, everything else, out the window, he literally just impulsively bails out of the boat and swims to the shore. Jesus already has breakfast cooking on an open fire. Notice verse 12, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew It was the Lord. The inference being, they kind of wanted to ask him, who are you? But yet they knew it was him. What's going on here? It would seem that the resurrected Jesus was the same but different. Resurrection does that. It makes us the same but different. can't tell you how many times I have witnessed that in the lives of people. They surrender their life to Jesus and they're the same, but they're different. I remember years ago being at a friend's birthday party and a UDA, don't ask any, too many questions, but a UDA brigadier was at the party and he's sitting in the corner with his minders. And all I could describe kind of the aura was of evil and smoldering darkness. You know, sounds like a Lord of the Rings movie, but it was true. Sitting at the other side of this bar, knowing who this guy was, looking across, it was just dark. And I don't mean the lights. About three weeks later, a friend of mine had led this guy to Jesus, and we bumped into each other on the street. The physical transformation was remarkable. It was like meeting a teddy bear. I mean, he was the same guy, but he was different. Resurrection does that. If you're here this morning and you don't yet follow Jesus, sometimes when I'm talking to people in that place, there's this apprehension of, what will happen to me? Like, do I all of a sudden become this hallelujah holy Joe? Is that what happens? have literally been asked that question before. And the reality is, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we're still us, we're the same. But we are different. We are different. There's something else going on. And the disciples recognize this in this moment. They want to ask, who are you? But they know it's Jesus. He's the same, but he was different. Anyway, after breakfast, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him. None of this is an accident. Jesus coming to them after they have been fishing all night, exactly like the first time he came to Peter, gathering them around a fire, exactly like the moment Peter denied Jesus, and then asking him three times if he loves him, recreating the betrayal, recreating the moment when his world imploded. What is broken? Where does it hurt? Two questions that every time I get around Jesus, watch him get around people and read about what he does in the scriptures. Two questions that he very gently but very directly moves towards people. What is broken? And where does it hurt why did peter go back to fishing what was going on in his mind when he's like you know what (laughs) i'm going out in the boat it wasn't because jesus hadn't been resurrected that makes sense to me like if jesus turns out to just be another failed messiah in the history of israel it makes sense the disciples look at each other and went well that was a mad three years i'm going back to the boat That's not what's happened. In fact, the opposite has happened. Jesus has actually commissioned them. Verse 21 of chapter 20, Jesus says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. Jesus says to the disciples, you have a job to do. You have some things to be up to. You'd think the next step would be, right, lads, let's get some strategic planning going on. I mean, that's consistent with Peter throughout the Gospels. We've been commissioned, right? Let's get to work. Jesus said, "So the Father sent him; he now sent us." Andrew, come over here. James, come over here. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to do the other. That's not what happened. Peter says, do "You know what? I'm going back to the boat. I'm going back to fishing." Peter, I think, the outspoken, passionate one, the one who declared in front of his friends and Jesus, that he would die for him. But when the time came, bottles it and fails horrendously. I think disqualifies himself. It's definitely a party. (laughs) That's so good. Poignant moment, come back. can't help but wonder emotionally what it must have been like for Peter when Jesus rose again. Like he was the ringleader. He was the one that was declaring his unfailing trust and faith. And he is the one that when the time comes can't even associate himself with Jesus. Like he can't even say, well, you know, I was around him once, but not in his inner circle. He can't even do that. I do not know that man. It must have been one of the most conflicting places to be when Jesus rises from the dead. And he is full of... Joy, his friend who he thought was dead, is alive. This great thing that God is doing has not been derailed. It's still on, and yet you now have to deal with the fact that at his moment of greatest need, you betrayed him. And not only that, all of your friends know. Peter, the leader, Peter, the passionate one, is now Peter, the failure. Can you imagine? He's moved from the one right beside Jesus to the one at the very edge of the group. The Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. You can imagine Peter going, yeah, but not me. He just hasn't told me yet. He's incredibly gracious and kind that way. But how can I have a place in that? I couldn't even associate myself with him. I'm quite sure Peter at this point in his life has an acute awareness of his brokenness and his pain. And he does what all of us do when we find ourselves acutely aware of our brokenness and our pain. We run to what's familiar. That's what we all do. We find the familiar things, whether that's Netflix and a tub of ice cream, whether that's a 70-hour week in work, whether that's a boat or a mountain or a run or a coffee with a friend. When we find ourselves acutely aware of our brokenness and our pain, we run to what's familiar. And sometimes it's healthy and good, and sometimes it's deeply, deeply dysfunctional. What is broken? Where does it hurt? Jesus beautifully moves towards Peter's brokenness and his pain. And he offers Peter forgiveness and he recommissions him into the story of God. The crux of the resurrection, forgiveness and victory. Forgiveness and victory. In the cross and in the resurrection, in the Easter story, Jesus defeats Satan, sin, and death. And because of that, a whole new definition, or more biblically correct perhaps to say, a whole new discovery of what it means to be human is revealed. You see, at Easter, we don't celebrate the birth of or the beginning of a new religion. We celebrate a whole new understanding of what it means to be human. Easter Sunday is not a surprising happy ending to the disciples' story. It's a glorious new beginning for all of humanity. And when we embrace resurrection, we find forgiveness for what is broken and we find victory over those things that would break us. And it is in resurrection and only in resurrection that we discover our destiny. James, do you and the band want to come back up as we land this? I was hoping you were in the room somewhere there. This word destiny, it's a funny word. Sometimes it can be like a a youth weekend kind of word. And particularly in Northern Ireland, I love, how, um, I love how grounded we are as a people. I love how um, we have this thing where we don't really want anyone to get too big for their boots. And so this word destiny sometimes can feel a little bit elusive. Because cultures like ours aren't supposed to have one. Like Americans talk about destiny. Wearing little Hawaiian shirts and shorts. Right? But, I mean, Northern Ireland, we're just just trying to probably, like, if you sum up Northern Ireland, it's not the American dream that one day we will be superheroes. It's, we'll do a good job. Like, we're the good job people, right? And so when we think about this word destiny, sometimes it can be like, well, that's not really for us. And we are so mistaken. God writes destiny over our lives. But listen, it's not for you to change job or to discover a career. It's not for you to decide to become a doctor or an architect or a joiner or an entrepreneur or an artist. Discovering our destiny is about discovering in light of the resurrection what it truly means to be human and to offer that to the world. To live in the forgiveness of Jesus and the victory of of Jesus, learning to offer and operate in that forgiveness and victory for our city and the world. That in an age of accusation, we would reclaim the posture of confession and repentance. That we would learn what it means to embrace the scandalous, radical message of Easter, which is God forgives us and that we would learn to stop pointing the finger at all of the brokenness around us and learn to embrace that which is within us and offer it to Jesus himself and hear him say back, I forgive you. It doesn't define you. There is a future. And in light of that forgiveness, take the victory to the world. I get nervous when I hear people talking about taking our cities for God. It sounds triumphalistic. It sounds like we've got it all figured out. And the reality is all of us are discovering how to offer and receive this forgiveness and join in in demonstrating with great and deep humility the victory of God to the world. That we would learn how to be humbly focused and gently courageous. that we would learn to accept the freedom that Jesus offers and to deliver that to our city and to the world. We have called this Easter series A Brave New You. I wonder how many of us need to discover that this morning. Discover an identity that is free from shame, is free from the impulse of hiding or the fear of being one day found out? Are you that's able to approach the brokenness in your family or your business or our city with courage and boldness and solutions? That is forgiven, a you that is free to forgive, and a you that's able to deliver humbly the victory of God to the world. Why don't you we stand? We're gonna pray and then we're gonna worship. Lord, we thank you for what you accomplished thank you for what you're doing. Kids ago, the things that drive us, things that affect us. And maybe this morning you need to hear that one word from Jesus forgiveness. You just need to hear him say that, I forgive you. And it doesn't need to define you, it doesn't need to define your family doesn't need to define your future. But it's hard to hear that word when we're hiding that thing. And in moments like this, when we feel like Jesus is moving towards us and we can go, Jesus, that's a sore part of my life. I, I try not to remember it. I try not to think about it. But actually, we've never dealt with it. We need to open it and invite him to come and say, I forgive you. I forgive you invite you just to close your eyes some of you can already feel this happening you know that the Lord is just moving towards that thing that moment that decision that stuff that you try to avoid you try not to think about but I, I want you to bring it to your mind bring it to your heart bring it before God in this moment hear him say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Lord Jesus, I, I release your forgiveness over this room now. Would we hear those words from just to live and operate in that I wonder do some of us this morning just need to experience the victory of Jesus the thing that I can't really describe or even comprehend but the undeniable victory of Jesus